Let me uh, open with a word of prayer before we dive into the scriptures. Heavenly Father, um, I am uh, standing before this text this week. I am really feeling the inadequacy of my, my own ability to, to fully embrace the realities that this, this passage is going to show us today and to walk in them. And I'm convicted and I feel inadequate to even proclaim them before your people. But I know that your grace and mercy is sufficient for me and for each one of my brothers and sisters here. And I plead with you right now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and grant us sight into the scriptures. And even beyond that, Father, that you would give us the ability to embrace and walk in the truth of your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to 2 Timothy 1.8. 2 Timothy 1.8. We are uh, continuing, this is like week two of our study in uh, the book of 2 Timothy. This is Paul's final letter in the New Testament. And uh, we unpacked why that's significant and powerful last week. Um, and if you were here last week, you, you remember us going through the, the first eight verses of that text, and we really came to a focus in the last three verses where Paul instructs Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that is in him, and to do that in service of the gospel. It was important for Timothy not to avoid... Uh, using those gifts out of fear or a sense of shame, but rather, Paul tells Timothy very clearly in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And he says in the verse just before that, that power is, is ours because God has not given us a spirit of fear or cowardice, But God has given us his own spirit, which is a spirit of power and love and of self-control. And we recognized last week that this letter isn't just written for Timothy uh, or for the pastoral staff at Ephesus, which is where Timothy presumably was when he received this letter. It is for the sake of every Christian who has been a recipient not only of God's gifts and talents, which we all have, but also God's own spirit. This letter is for us. Its truths are for us, not just for Paul and not just for Timothy. And we saw last week, we enumerated uh, quite extensively that throughout the New Testament, there is this very clear command to Christians not to be ashamed, but rather to embrace and share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. So this is not just for Timothy, this is for all believers. The Christian life is a call to bear witness to the gospel, even if there's a price to pay for that. Um, Even if there's hostility that comes along with it, we are called to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. This doesn't mean we masochistically seek suffering. Uh, Obviously, that's that's not what this is at all. Uh, But the, the contention here in the text, and really what the passages we looked at in the New Testament, was that we don't need to seek it if we are if we are boldly sharing the gospel if we are bold in our witness in this broken, fallen world with hostility towards Jesus and hostility towards the gospel, suffering will find us, difficulty will find us in this world if we communicate God's word. But I think a helpful question for us to ask is if we're not experiencing any kind of friction in our lives or any kind of difficulty in our lives, is that because we're not sharing the gospel? Is that because we're not proclaiming God's word? In other words, are we doing precisely what Timothy is, is or what Paul is fighting for in the heart of Timothy, um, in, in that he is, he is faced with the possibility of saying, you know, I don't want to say hard things anymore. I don't want to preach the gospel anymore. I think I'm just going to step back and not do that. And so the question that we have coming out of last week and coming out of verse 8 is really this. How do we do verse 8. How are we obedient to the call to not be ashamed? How are we obedient to share in suffering? And how, do we, how in the world do we do that by the power of God? And this is 
explicitly what Paul answers in the verses which follow. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 2 Timothy verses 8 through 14, and then we'll do what we always do, which is unpack them in order. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I, Paul says, was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, Timothy, who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so what's important about this section that follows the, the exhortation that Paul gives Timothy in verse 8 is that it is an explanation of why, that not only why he should not be ashamed of, of the gospel, but also like how it is that he shares the gospel and shares in suffering by the power of God. This explains it. This gives us a, a rubric, a, a framework for us to understand what Paul's command is in our lives. And he's saying here, listen, God's power flows through you and it allows you to endure any suffering that might come your way by being associated with Christ, by being associated with me, his prisoner, in chains, Paul was about to be executed here, or by simply proclaiming the gospel. So that's what Paul's doing here. And he starts in verse 9 and 10 by recounting the reality of the gospel in Timothy's life. Now, this is important. I'm going to repeat this multiple times. This is how God's power is mediated to Timothy. This is how God's power is mediated to us. In the context of bearing witness to the gospel, the power of God does not primarily come through some like inexplicable supernatural experience. It comes through what Paul is doing right here before Timothy. The power of God is mediated through God's word. I mean, just reflect on creation. God created the universe. How? By his word. God inspired scripture because it is the word of God. So the truth of the gospel, the, the massive eternal implications that this truth of, of what God did through Christ, when it comes in direct contact with our lives, that's how the power is mediated. And we're going to see that multiple times. That's what Paul's doing here. So after giving this command to Timothy, he recounts for both of them and for all of us what it is that God has done in the gospel so that he can endure. So look at verse 8 here. It says here in verse, or actually verse 9 rather, it says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. This is what God has done for all of us in the gospel. He saved us in the gospel, and we're going to see that vividly portrayed in verse 10. But Paul here links God's saving with his calling of us to a holy calling. So this is important. Our salvation isn't just freedom from sin and death. It's not just leaving something bad. It is a calling into something holy. God, by saving us, has set us apart for himself. We're no longer part of the world. We are his. We belong to him. He's made us his own. And so we have a new purpose in our lives. And you see this throughout the New Testament. It really is the heartbeat of the New Testament. We're not just saved from something. We are saved for something, and that is the holy calling, which is from God. And we saw this last week. Those who are saved by the gospel are called to bear witness to the gospel. 
And this is precisely what Paul is referencing here. But he wants to be clear about something. We are not saved and called because of anything good in us. That's not what happened. He says here specifically, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. We did not contribute anything good to initiate or elicit God's saving of us. In other words, there were, there were zero works in you that caused God to set into his, in motion this plan of redemption for you specifically. We only, you and I only brought deficit to him. The only thing we brought to the table was our own sin. And therefore, God in this transaction is our only hope. And that's why Paul says that our hope is found in God's own purpose and grace. That's the source of our salvation and our calling. This is a, a, a remarkable truth that we really need to remind ourselves, come back to every single day. We did not save ourselves. We didn't do it. God saved us. Even the very faith in our hearts, even the very repentance that we walk in, which we're going to see in 2 Timothy 2, those things were granted to us by God. We did not produce those things in our own flesh. It comes from God, and it originates from his own purpose and grace outside of us. That's the origin. But what's even more amazing about this is what Paul says next. This grace... God gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Not during the earliest parts of the ages, but before there were ages. Just ponder that with me for a second. Let that, let that sit on you. It's only a few words here, but what he's saying is that before there was a universe, before there was cosmos, space, time, anything but God. God had set his love on you personally. That's what his purpose, that's where his purpose and grace originated from. And I want to be clear about this. This is not some vague, nebulous act on God's part where he's just casting a net randomly into this thing and pulling out fish from the ocean. That's not at all why, why, why even Paul would bring this up. And this is God specifically, individually pursuing you from all eternity. If your faith is in Christ, this is why it's so astonishing for Paul. And this is why he's bringing it up to Timothy. If it was just a random thing, what does Timothy care? The reason you're a Christian right now isn't ultimately because of a decision you made, even though that decision is, is important. It's not ultimately because of that. It's not ultimately because of your upbringing, even though that is critically important, and we looked at that last week. The reason you are a Christian right now is because of this grace from before there was time, and it came to you. The roots of your salvation and calling are in eternity past, which means that God's, I mean, I just want this to, to land on you individually. God's love for you never had a beginning. Feel that. If what Paul is saying is true here, that's what that means. He has always loved you. And not because of any works in you, though he knew you perfectly before you were formed every day of your life, before there was even stars in the heavens, he looked down on us in our brokenness, in our rebellion, in our sin, and he says, I love you. I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. I'm going to have you in my family. The reason why this is important for Timothy, the reason why this is important for us is because we are never to look into ourselves for a reason for God to love us. We're never to try to find some reason for him to love us and show it to him. God loves us because he loves us, period. And he loved us before there was a universe. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy in verse 9. In verse 10, he continues his train of thought 
um, by showing us how that love, that grace, that, that purpose comes into space and time in human history and is displayed and applied for us. He says in verse 9 that this purpose and grace has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So that's where the reality of God's love, uh, where it, 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 even though it's an eternity past, it collides into human history and it, it infiltrates our world, finds us, and saves us. That's, that's what happened here in that verse. He says that this purpose and grace was manifested in the appearing of the Savior. That's the incarnation of God the Son. Christ Jesus comes into the world and dies on a cross. That's what he means by the gospel at the end of that verse. So just conceive of, of what Paul is putting in those few words, all that it means that we see in Scripture. The perfect Son of God bears our sins in his body, pays for those sins with his own death, so that for all of us who trust in him, death would be abolished. The Greek word here is, for abolished is, it means literally rendered inoperative. Can't function anymore for us. For those who have been saved, death doesn't have any hold on us. That's what Paul's saying. That's what happened on the cross. And all of us are going to, uh, most likely, unless Christ returns, we're going to taste death firsthand. But death ultimately has no power over us because through the gospel, God has made death, this thing that consumes everything in the universe, a servant to us. Such that when we die, death takes us to be with our master forever. Death serves us. Because on the cross, Christ dealt a fatal blow to death. But the gospel, you know, isn't just about death. The gospel is about the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, like Lindsay was talking about today. When Jesus was raised from the dead, that life that flows through his body flows into our lives. We have a, a living hope. That, that's a reality that we experience right now. And that's what Paul means here in verse 11 when he says, uh, that he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is eternal life that we have. It's more than that. He uses this word immortality, which in the Greek doesn't just mean um, that we live forever. Immortality here in the Greek means that Christ secured physical bodies that will never taste corruption or decay. That's what that word means. We will never be corrupted in those bodies. Though we may die, when Christ returns, we will be raised to live forever. And our new bodies will be undefiled, unfading, and will never, ever, ever see disease, suffering, affliction, or pain again. That's what Paul is saying here, that Christ has brought to light through the gospel. And this is what the cross, the cross won for those who believe. He's bringing this truth of the gospel into direct contact with Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, listen to me. The love of God for you had no beginning, and therefore it will have no end. He has made a way in the cross for you to be with him forever. I mean, if you conceive of your salvation as a tree, the roots of that tree go down into eternity past, and therefore the branches will extend into eternity future. That's the picture that Paul's painting of salvation here. And this picture, in these two small verses, provides Timothy with the very means by which the power of God, which was talked about in verse 8, will flow to him and will flow to all of us who are reading this 2,000 years ago in the middle of great suffering. It flows to us in great suffering. That's the whole point of Paul's recounting of the gospel. Timothy knows these things, and Timothy's been on missionary journeys with Paul. He's heard him preach this over and over and over again, but he needs to be reminded of them 
because it is only when the reality of what Paul is talking about, when that takes hold of us, that we can endure suffering in this world for the sake of the gospel. Being gripped by these things, by God's love for us from all eternity, by Christ's work on the cross to remove every single barrier between us and him forever. When we do that, we are able to traverse through the darkest valleys. That's what these truths do for us. And so we're called to saturate our hearts with this truth. I mean, we saw this last week in verse 5, where Paul reminded Timothy, he said, listen, your sincere faith right now, the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus, it didn't arise out of your heart ex nihil, like out of nothing. It didn't arise out of your heart because of the encounter that I had with you. Your faith came from the word of God. And the reason it came from the word of God is because your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, taught this to you. When you, when you were a young child, you heard these words. And when you heard them and your heart inclined to them, that faith is what has anchored you to Christ. And it's the same reality. It's the same experience that will allow us to face trials in our lives. It's no different. It's not a different category of experience. That's the same faith that rooted us to Christ at the beginning and that will anchor us in the middle of a storm of suffering in this world. But what Paul does in verse 11 is he, he shifts gears a little bit from his recounting of the gospel to his own personal experience of this truth. And this is, this is huge. He's just told Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God is, that is in you. He's told him, do not be ashamed, share in suffering. And in verse 11, Paul shows Timothy what this command looks like with flesh and blood on it by saying, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what I'm going through. He says in verse 11, or at the end of verse 10, really, the gospel, and then verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why, Paul says, I suffer as I do. So Paul's suffering has come from his ministry of preaching and teaching the gospel. That's why he is suffering. That's why he suffers as he does here. And this is what he's preparing Timothy for. So Paul is experiencing, he's, right now, he is in chains and he's on his way to be executed. It becomes very clear towards the end of the book that his time is short. We don't know how long he had. In fact, when I was talking about this with Rachel earlier this year as I, we were driving somewhere and I remember us talking about this text, what shocks me when I read this text, this is not in the manuscript, this is extra, sorry. What shocks me about this is that he wants Timothy to come and be with him. We don't know if that ever happened. We don't know if Timothy ever saw Paul after he received this letter. And you can feel it in Paul's voice. He doesn't know if he's going to see Timothy again. And so you can imagine the agony on agony on agony that he has. Not only has he been abandoned, not only is he about to stand trial, not only is he going to be executed, but he doesn't know if he's going to see his, the only person in the world that he could call his beloved child. And this is his letter. Paul says here, that this is why he's suffering. What is his response? Jesus put him in the prison. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ. The gospel is what got him into the prison. He's suffering. Why is he suffering? This is what he says here, verse 12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's his response. With, who knows, days left to live, he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. He, he has endured humiliation. He has endured, uh, no doubt, beatings, because we've seen that in his life before this event, 
and an execution that is on its way. He refuses to be ashamed, and he's telling Timothy here, listen, here's why I refuse to be ashamed. I know who I believe. I know him. And he means Christ. And this is so huge for us to see Paul say this. We oftentimes think that faith is, is an intellectual assent to a fact, an idea, or a theoretical or abstract concept, or maybe it's just believing in a list of doctrines that are important. Doctrine is very important. But what Paul describes as faith here is he knows someone deeply, personally, and that someone is Jesus. And his knowing of Christ is to such a degree that in the middle of the greatest possible suffering, that knowledge of Christ, all that Jesus has done for him, all that Jesus has promised him is sufficient to carry him through it. It's more than enough to ward off any sense of shame. Not that he doesn't have reason to shame. He has plenty of reason to feel shame right now, physically, outwardly. But it is the value of Christ that rooted, that's rooted in Paul's heart that, that allows him to endure any suffering that he's going through. Any. In Acts 21.13, Paul is on his way. I think Timothy was even there when this happened. Acts, I didn't have time to check it, sorry. Acts 21.13, on his way to Jerusalem, he, he stops by with some brothers as he's approaching, and they're pleading with him, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Don't do it. Because they know it's going to turn out bad. The religious leaders in, in Jerusalem hate Paul, and they've been trying to kill him for years. And he's going right back in there, constrained by the Holy Spirit. And they are weeping. They are pleading with him, don't do it. Luke, the author of the book, is telling him, don't go there. And Paul says this, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready, he says, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is who Jesus was to the Apostle Paul. Jesus was of infinite value to this man. So it didn't matter if I live, doesn't matter if I die, only that the worth of Christ would be seen in me. And more than even that, not only was Jesus' worth uh, uh, bearing reproach for and bearing shame for, but Paul says in verse 11, in addition to that, I am convinced that he, Christ, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's an amazing statement. Think about what he's saying here. Paul's suffering, no matter how grievous it was, did not dislodge in him his confidence that Christ would keep his promise, that he would never leave him nor forsake him, that he would guard until that day what has been entrusted to him. And what was entrusted to Paul was the gospel, his witness of the gospel, his ministry, his work, his being a, a preacher and a teacher. And Paul says here, I was, I'm convinced that Christ will guard that until the day. Until that day, which is likely the final day of human history. It's what the Bible, the New Testament often refers to as the day when Christ returns to bring the kingdom in its fullness. Paul knew Jesus well enough to be convinced that Christ would guard what he had given Paul to the end of human history. And this is what fueled his endurance. So I want to stop just for a second and, and ask a question. This is what I do in my own studies. And I think it's helpful and reflective. It's not intended to guilt or shame. When I read a text like this, I ask, is this my experience? Is this how my life is defined? And if we were to say no to that question, might that be the reason that we often find ourselves not using our gifts for the sake of the kingdom, 
for the sake of the gospel? I mean, in this scene, think about, think about this for a moment. Paul is exhorting Timothy not to be ashamed. Then he's using a picture of how beautiful the gospel is, how powerful it is. And then he returns to his own experience and he says, listen, Timothy, I know him. I know him. And I'm not, I'm not confused about him. This is not a game to me. I'm not confused about him. Even while I await my own execution in chains, I know him. And that is enough. That's enough for me. And so, I, I mean, I just, at this point in the text, I'm like, is this my experience? Or am I, and maybe you relate to this, in the place of Timothy, and I need to be told by Paul, do not be ashamed. Share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Don't run away from this. This is your holy calling. And so Paul here lovingly, graciously, mercifully with his beloved child Timothy and by the Spirit to all of us who would be reading this 2,000 years later, Paul provides a pathway for us to follow in order for this to happen. And this is what we see in verse 13 and 14. Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is what he tells Timothy. And this is what he tells all of us. Like we said last week, we do not need to be teachers or preachers for this command to apply to us. We all have gifts and talents that can be used for the kingdom in some way. Maybe not in the same way, but in some way, and therefore we all must be witnesses of the gospel at some level. So how do we do that? Well, Paul says here, step one, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul has spoken clearly now in verses 9 and 10 about the glory of the gospel, and then he's invited us into his own life in this cell that he's in, awaiting execution, and he's shown us what obedience to this command looks like. And now he's offering an invitation. We are called to follow a pattern. And before we look at what that pattern is, he says that we need to do it in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This phrase, faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, is actually a phrase that we see pop up in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.14. And in that passage, Paul's talking about his own salvation. He says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's describing how Christ saved him. And the reason why Paul's bringing this up for Timothy here is that he wants Timothy to recognize that any obedience, excuse me, any obedience <laughs> that any obedience that Timothy has to this command to follow Paul's words must never be because of Paul. It must be because of Jesus. It must be in Christ. All of this must be done in Christ. There is no value in anything that Paul has said if it is applied outside of Christ Jesus from a place of unbelief or from a place that refuses to love Christ. Timothy, in other words, cannot do this in the flesh. He can't do this on his own. He can't share in suffering just because Paul told him so. That's not enough. He can only do this by the power of God in verse 8. And that power comes through knowing Christ, knowing the gospel, and being convinced, totally convinced, of what Jesus has promised. That's what he means by this little, par this little uh, parenthetical where he says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. But this becomes even more clear in verse 14. We're going to get to the pattern in a second. Where Paul says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, if you've been following closely, you should raise your hand and say, this doesn't make any sense. Paul just told us that Christ was going to guard what had been entrusted to him. So why is he now putting this on Timothy? Why is he telling Timothy, you need to do the guarding? I mean, is that contradictory? Is that, are those things at odd? And the answer is no. Actually, they're the same thing. And the answer is in the verse. He says, by the Holy Spirit. So the guarding that Timothy is doing isn't some white-knuckle, 
flesh-driven suffering for the gospel. It's not guarding in his own strength. The guarding here is by the Holy Spirit who dwells within every single person who is trusted in Christ. Anyone who's been saved and called by God has the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it is ultimately underneath any doing that we have that it's the Holy Spirit who is at work. He is at work in Timothy's lives, in, in Timothy's life, in his desires, in his passions, in his actions. The things that he has in his life, all of those things, the Holy Spirit is at work to powerfully do this guarding. Romans 8 describes it as walking by the Spirit. This is what it looks like. And Paul says, if we go back to verse 13, he says, what it's going to feel like for you to do this, what, it's going to, what, what, what it looks like on paper is for you to follow the sound words you have heard in me. So there's this, I apologize, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. This is the pattern that we're talking about. The pattern, to be clear, is not word that, words that Paul came up with on his own. The pattern here that he's talking about is the very pattern communicated in Scripture. It is the pattern of the Bible. And Paul, in 2 Timothy, is going to engage this again. 2 Timothy 3.16. Listen to what he says here about Scripture. He says, all Scripture, this is going to sound familiar to some of you guys, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek word is theonostos. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the pattern. In other words, Paul's saying in that text, the Bible is, Scripture is sufficient, one of our pillars. The Bible is completely sufficient to do all of these things in the life of the believer. Teaching, reproof, correction, training, such that we would be complete and equipped for every good work, including the good work of not being ashamed and enduring suffering. This phrase, breathed out by God in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's only one word in the Greek, it's theonostos. Theo means God. And neustos is where we get the word breathe. It's God breathed is literally what the translation is. Neustos comes from the Greek word pneuma, some of you guys know that word. Pneuma is breath, but it also means spirit. Spirit and breath are the same word in Greek. So this breath in 2 Timothy 3.16 is actually the spirit. He is the one who's guided the words of Scripture. And so when Paul tells Timothy, listen, guard the good deposit that you've been entrusted with by the Spirit of God who dwells within us, we should not conceive of the Spirit as this invisible force field like something from Star Wars or something. Uh, it's not at all like that. The Spirit is the very person of God who has inspired the Word of God. And so to guard something by the Spirit is to take the words of God and go and fight against any resistance in us that would keep us from obeying the call to not be ashamed. And that's what this guarding is in the context of 2 Timothy and specifically right here. It is a war. And you're going to see this language of war throughout 2 Timothy. He's going to call him a soldier ready for battle. He's going to call himself a soldier. And the main weapon of the Christian, the soldier, is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. So Paul's telling Timothy in verse 14 that, that anything I've ever told you that coheres with the glory of God revealed in the Scriptures, that is sound words. Those are healthy words. Take them and follow that pattern. Follow the pattern of Scripture. That's how you guard the good deposit. That's how you obey the command of verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This book is power. Power. Not like a book of spells or anything like that. It is power. 
And it's, it's power that is experienced when we saturate our souls in its realities every single day. When that happens, we will become increasingly more willing to follow this pattern. We will never be willing to follow the pattern of this book if we treat it lightly. If it's just a nice to have, which I'm going to be honest with you, is, is the way that a lot of Christians in America treat their they're Bibles. They have dust on them, and they are unused. And that is the fact, no doubt, why many, many Christians, many people who claim to be Christians in our culture are so anemic in their faith, and they recoil at the first idea of suffering for the sake of being a Christian or suffering for the sake of the gospel. And they do everything they can to avoid the call that is on their lives for claiming Christ. And, and I mean, most people that call themselves Christians interact with this book maybe once a week for 30 minutes on a Saturday or Sunday. And it's when a guy gets up and he talks about it. And then when he's done talking about it, they go home and they do what they want to do. Not this. Not this. This is not what they pick back up until they go back to church. And if I'm going to be real with you just about this, folks who treat the Bible this way, this is sobering for me. I don't treat the Bible this way, but this is sobering for me, recognizing I need to be more vigilant about this. Folks who treat the Bible this way, whether they agree intellectually with what's in it or not, is irrelevant. If they treat it this way, they treat the words of God like this, they will walk away when it gets hard. They'll be like, why am I even bothered by this? I don't even believe this stuff. I don't even like this stuff. If we're not willing to bear witness in our culture right now of the glory of the gospel that Paul pointed to earlier, what switch in us is going to need to get flipped in order for us to do that? And the answer is, there is no switch. There's no switch in us. If we don't do it now, when adversity and persecution and slander come, we will simply recoil into obscurity and irrelevance, and we will fail to guard the deposit which has been entrusted to each and every single person who claims to be of Christ. The truth of Scripture, and specifically the, the gospel, which is the beating heart at the center of the Bible, is what binds us to Jesus. So we, we as Christians should make every effort to bathe our souls in the realities of God's word every day. His work in Christ in our lives, his promises. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time here, we, we don't have a lot of time here, I want to close with this. I want to do with you what Paul did for Timothy in two verses want to expand it just a little bit. And I just want to remind you of the truth of the gospel, personally. I want to remind you about the glory of Jesus Christ. And my hope and prayer is that for myself, in hearing these words and reviewing them multiple times, and then you in hearing these words, that this would lodge deep into your souls and take root in the soil of your heart and become an anchor to Jesus, our Savior. And that it would not only do that, but that it would fuel in us a desire to bear witness of the gospel and mediate to us the very power needed for us to be bold in that witness, even when everything in our lives is shattered into a million pieces. I mean, it's going to happen to you at some point, just being real with you. Like, it's going to, some, some, something's going to happen to you, and it's going to feel like everything's over. It happens to everybody. Whether it's suffering directly for witnessing the gospel, or just simply being a Christian in this broken world and experiencing the trials that everyone faces and doing so for the glory of Christ, it will happen to you. So as you hear this, I want you to hear this, and I don't want you to hear this as just a group of people hearing somebody say something generically. I want you to hear this as though it's being said to you individually, as someone who has received the purpose and grace of Christ from all eternity. So listen 
closely. This is not God's grace for some undifferentiated mass of humanity. This is God's grace for you. You, personally, specifically, you. It was your name on his lips when he called you out of darkness. Here's the gospel. God from all eternity loved you. You. And he set his heart on knitting your soul to his infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious son. Before there were stars, before there was anything. God loved you individually, your face in his mind. And despite the plague of sin that would sweep over this planet and bring us willingly into its sway, despite our own rebellion every single day, he has zealously pursued you in the person of his son. Christ entered creation as a man, lived without any sin, so that he could bear your sin, your sin. And in bearing it, he took it to the cross and he died with it on him. His death erases all of your sin forever. Past, present, and future. It is, if your faith is in him, it's gone. The record of debt has been put aside, Colossians 2. It's gone. Because on the cross, God's justice and his wrath toward that sin crushed his son so severely that there was no penalty left for us to bear. On the cross, Christ satisfied every debt you ever owed to God for how you've dishonored his glory or abused his grace. If your faith is in Christ, this is true about you. Three days after his death, Jesus, who says in John 10, I lay down my life of my own accord and I take it up of my own accord, does just that. He rises from the dead, and listen to me, never to die again. Death has no power over him. Well, what makes this amazing is that he didn't rise alone, but he picked you up in his arms and brought you with him. When he rose, you rose, Romans 6. And in that moment, he triumphed over your sin and your death forever, such that the power of death for you has been abolished. It's gone. And the gift of eternal life is your portion forever. This is the gospel. And for those who receive this gospel, know that they will reign with Christ for all eternity, never again to taste sin or pain, never again to taste sorrow or suffering, never again to even taste fear or temptation. Those are gone. You will be free forever one day. And you will be in the presence of the one for whom you were made, the one who loved you and who redeemed you at an extraordinary cost to himself that we will spend all eternity trying to understand and grapple with. And in his presence alone, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's the only place that that verse is true. In his presence. When what was done for you by God in Christ Jesus actually takes root in your soul, it will change your life. It will. You know it just by hearing the words that I'm saying. When it takes root in us, the power of God, which is the power of the gospel, comes to us through knowing the gospel, knowing it, rehearsing it to ourselves, believing it. Paul in Romans 1.16 says what? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
And the reason he says that is because the gospel is in his bloodstream. It's his heart. It's everything to him. And it is only in the gospel that we can see the glory of Christ the way we need to see it. And that glory alone is what enables us to remain fixed on him as the tsunami waves of suffering in this world pass over us over and over and over again. It doesn't matter if it's suffering from persecution or if it's suffering from cancer. It doesn't matter. The way we navigate, Christians navigate suffering in our lives is by rehearsing to our souls the truth of the gospel and that we will be with him in glory forever. That'll get you through anything. That will get you through anything. So risen hope, my beloved, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me today and saturate your hearts with the scriptures. Every day, come to the fountain of life and drink, drink, drink. Embrace your holy calling in this world and do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, but rather share in suffering by the power of God. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Your love knows no boundaries and came and sought us even when we fought you. We do not deserve your grace, which is why it's grace. We ask, Father God, that your mercy would come to us right now and take the, the truths that we've looked at, not only about the gospel, but about it being the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Take that truth and weave it into the, the fabric of our souls so that it's not an idea in a book on a page, but it's real for us. Such that we can walk into dangerous situations, walk into hard situations, walk into awkward situations, anything, and be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Communicate your truth with love and gentleness, but with boldness and with an eagerness to see your spirit go to work, just like your spirit has done in our own lives. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, knowing that you are faithful to do far more abundantly than all that we could even ask for or even think. Do this great thing for your people, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.